السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والعاقبة للمتقين ولا عدوان إلا على الظالمين وأشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له إله الأولين والآخرين وأشهد أن نبينا محمدا عبده ورسوله المصطفى الأمين اللهم صل وسلم وبارك على عبدك ورسولك محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين أما بعد Welcome to another lesson of Quranic progression and inshallah ta'ala today we are going to be, insha'Allah, concluding Tafsir of Surah Al-Ghashiyah. So last week we covered a number of verses, I think four verses probably, uh, that we covered from verses 18 onwards. And inshallah subhanahu wa ta'ala, after mentioning, uh, as Allah Azza wa Jal does in the opening passages of Surah Al-Ghashiyah, after mentioning the uh, situation of the people on Yawm Al-Qiyamah, uh, one of the names of which is Al-Ghashiyah, Allah Azza wa Jal speaks about the situation of the disbelievers first and then Allah Azza wa Jal speaks about the situation of the believers on Yawm Al-Qiyamah. Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala then moves on to the second part of the surah in which Allah Azza wa Jal then speaks about His signs, uh, the signs in the creation of Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala in His universe. And Allah Azza wa Jal mentions four of them and those are the four verses that we uh, spoke about last week. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala speaks about the heavens and how it has been raised and the many signs that you can see therein from the, you know, everything that the heavens contains from the sun and the moon and the stars, uh, from the rain and the clouds and everything else that Allah azza wa has placed within the heavens. And obviously when we say the heavens, at first instance, it is what we can see. When Allah azza wa says, do you not see? أَفَلَا يَنْظُرُونَ Or, uh, sorry, the first one rather, uh, before we got to that was the uh, the camels. Allah Azza wa verse 17 onwards, therefore. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala speaks about the creation of the camels. And we said, as some of the scholars of Tafsir mentioned, that Allah Azza wa speaks about the camels because of how familiar the Arabs were with this animal and how Allah Azza wa has placed within the camel a number of abilities and a number of, of traits that make the camel ideal to the setting and the situation that the Arabs were faced with living in the desert. And the camel is an amazing animal in terms of its size and in terms of its strength and in terms of its endurance, in terms of its ability to survive in the harshest of, of places uh, such as the desert and so on. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala commands us to, uh, to speak or commands us to, to look at the camel as a means of attaining or understanding the signs of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and through those signs of coming closer to Allah Azza wa Jal and understanding his Tawheed subhanahu wa ta'ala. In verse number 18, the second sign that Allah Azza wa Jal gives then is concerning the heavens. And what I was, what I was going to say was that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, when he tells us to uh, contemplate over the heavens or look at the heavens and consider the heavens, it is obviously at first instance what we can see. But we as Muslims know from the many ahadith of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam that what we see of the heavens is the lowest heaven, the sama'u dunya and it is the lowest of the heavens that we are able to see. But that there are a number of heavens above that, and above that obviously is the throne of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And so the creations of the heavens, and the and, and what Allah azza wa jalla has placed within the heavens from its inhabitants, whether that be the angels, or whether that be the, the structures that we, are, that we know of in the authentic sunnah, such as the Beit al-Ma'mur, 
whether that be what Allah Azza wa has placed therein, all of that is from the knowledge of the unseen. But it is from the creation of the heavens of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So what you see and what I see of the heavens, it is a small portion of a greater creation that Allah Azza wa has placed therein. And that is why we have those hadith like the hadith of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam when uh, he heard in the hadith the creaking of the heavens. He heard a sound like a rumbling in the heavens. And the Prophet sallallahu alayhi said, that the earth crumbles or it creaks, and it has a right, every right that it should creak. For there is not a handspan of space upon it, except that there is an angel either standing or bowing or prostrating in worship to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And in the other hadith of the Baytul Ma'mur, which is the house of worship that Allah Azza has placed in the heavens that is directly above the Kaaba, the Prophet said, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, 70,000 angels go into Al Baytul Ma'mur to worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and when they leave, they will never return again. And every single batch of 70,000 angels comes in. So at one single time, you have 70,000 angels. That group leaves, it will never return again. And that has happened from as long as Allah has willed from the beginning of time, and it will continue till Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wills. And that shows you the immense number of the angels of Allah and the creations that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has in the heavens, Jalla fi ula. And so that is from the signs that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala then tells us also to think about and to reflect upon. From those signs, the third of those signs that we discussed last week is the sign of the mountains. And how Allah has made the mountains a firm and stable structure. Uh, and it is considered to be one of the greatest natural structures of might and power and, and prestige within the natural world upon the earth. And we mentioned last week the uh, the the uh, the statement of Ibn Qayyim rahimahullah ta'ala when he spoke about this sign in some detail and how Allah Azza wa has placed within it many benefits and uh, many signs like the mountain in and of itself has so many parts and elements to it so many things that once you start to analyze and you start to study and you start to look at it in a deeper way you see many many other signs and benefits that Allah Azza wa has prepared uh, in the mountains and then the fourth of those signs that we covered last week uh, in verse number 20 is the earth. How the earth is spread out. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala spreads out the earth so that the people may reside upon it, that they may live their lives upon it, that they may go about their business and conduct whatever it is that they need in order to survive and to thrive upon this world. Allah has made the earth in such a way that they can use it for their existence. And we only have to look around, especially today in our time that we live in uh, with all of the technology and engineering and science and the way that people have literally taken over the earth in terms of their structures and their buildings and and the conveniences that they have or the infrastructure that they have put in place uh, you know it is something which in and of itself is a sign that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has made the earth such a place of abode that it is possible for us to do those types of things and you know anyone that's like looked at the uh, even like for example the surface of the moon or the surface of Mars or what, what they say concerning the surfaces of these other planets that they've they found they you know the, one of the, the the clearest things concerning them is that it is extremely hostile uh, in terms of its environment in terms of its climate in terms of its atmos- atmosphere in terms of being able to use it as a place of residence you know you, you have these like kind of sci-fi 
scenarios where people say perhaps at one point or another, once we exhaust the resources of this world, you'd have to go and live on the moon or you'd have to go and move to Mars. Or and that's why they're trying to find if it's possible to exist on those planets, whether there's water and whether it, is, it would even be possible to live upon such a, such a place as the moon or as another planet like Mars. And even if that is the case, then Allah Azza knows best, but the point is, even if it was the case, there is no doubt that the earth, in terms of the way that it has been prepared by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, is completely and, 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 uh, and in every single way, shape and form, more hospitable in terms of the life that it has. Not only in terms of human life, but then in terms of the animals and the plants and the vegetation and everything else that we see here. And so Allah Azza gives us these four signs to reflect upon. And they are there to reflect upon so that you may reflect upon, therefore, the existence, the reason of, for your existence and your creation. And it may lead you to the tawheed of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that is what Allah Azza wa says in verse number 21, in the verse that we're going to uh, begin today's lesson with. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala then says, فَذَكِّرْ إِنَّمَا أَنْتَ مُذَكِّرْ Your only task is to give, so warn them. No, I think, I think there's a mistake in my... Translation that I don't know if that's the same everywhere. Okay, yeah, so I think I have a mistake, sorry, in my in the translation that I have. Professor Abdul Harim's translation so warn them your only task is to give warning. And in Sahih International, so remind you are only a reminder. Mufti Taqi, so keep on preaching, you are only a preacher. And Muhsin Khan, so remind them, O Muhammad, you are only one who reminds. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, that these are the signs that he has given and therefore Allah says فَذَكِّرْ Remind or warn or preach or give advice all of them come into the meaning of the word dhikr dhikr is remembrance right so in Arabic when we say for example make dhikr, make adhkar it means to remind or to remember uh, but in some contexts it can also mean to give warning it can mean to give advice it can mean to teach all of this is a type of, 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 type of remembrance or admonition that is given. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala commands the Prophet وسلم, using the letter fa fadakir. So then warn. Alright, also also then preach or give advice. So whichever one of those words that you want to substitute for this. And uh, the teacher of our teacher, Shaykh Muhammad Al-Amin Ta'ala, he said that the fa here is to show that these signs of Allah should immediately lead you to be remind, reminded of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that is why the fa is there for ta'qib, meaning look at the creation of these animals, look at the creation of the heavens, look at the creation of the earth, look at the creation of the mountains and so on, and by them be reminded. And so therefore be reminded. And so therefore remind yourselves and remind others or take warning and heed yourselves and give warning and heed towards others. And so Allah is saying to the Prophet that one of the greatest ways of, of calling people to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and one of the greatest ways even for the people who are already upon guidance to increase in guidance and to come closer to Allah is to reflect upon the signs of the universe. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala repeats this instruction of at-tadhkir or tadhakkur of reminding people in multiple places in the Quran. So Allah in a number of places in the Quran commands the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam to be to, to remind and to give admonition and to warn and to and to and to teach and to advise and so on. From those instances is the verse in Surah Al Dhariyat. Allah says, Wa dhikra tanfa'ul mu'minin and remind 
or uh, and remind for indeed reminder benefits and profits the believers so a person who is reminded is constantly someone who is being mindful of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and that is why dhikr is called dhikr because it makes you constantly remember, remember uh, mindful of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala you're constantly being made to remember the name of Allah azza wa jal which then in your heart in turn should make you mindful and conscious of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and that is why dhikr at its greatest uh, in, in its greatest form is when the two merge or when the two are in alignment the remembrance of the heart alongside the remembrance of the tongue so when you say subhanallah or alhamdulillah or allahu akbar or la hawla wa la quwwata illa billah or la ilaha illallah or any other dhikr that you make you do it with a heart that is attentive mindful of allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and when you have that 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 merging or that alignment of those two the heart and the tongue which is action and belief together that is when the dhikr gives you or the dhikr of allah azza wa jalla gives to you those amazing rewards and virtues that are mentioned within the sunnah of the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam the hadith in sahih bukhari as an example you know it's an amazing hadith that shows to you the importance and shows to us the importance of of warning and reminder the hadith of ali radiyallahu anhu that he mentions that his wife fatima radiyallahu anha the hadith in sahih muslim the hadith of um, of ali radiyallahu anhu his wife fatima she used to work at home and her hands as they would become as the, the hands of any person who works and labors with their hands and does rough work with them uh, they become coarse and so she went to the house of the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam this is fatima to ask him for a servant some of the wordings and narrations mention that the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam had received at that time a number of of slaves that had come to him and so she wanted a servant or a slave or someone to come and maid to help her within the housework the uh, fatima radiyallahu anha comes to the house of aisha radiyallahu anha she doesn't find the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam home so she informs aisha instead oh aisha this is what i've come for this is what i would like please inform the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam when he returns the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam returns late in the evening and so aisha radiyallahu anha tells her your daughter fatima came this is what she said this is what she requested the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam went to the house of ali and fatima radiyallahu anhuma he entered upon them ali radiyallahu anhu says that we were already lying down in bed right upon their mattress or wherever it is that they would sleep and he goes so i stood to i stood i got ready to stand up to greet the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam but he told me to stay where i was and then he came and he sat between us so they're lying down he came and he sat so that he could see the two of them he said to the extent that i could feel the coolness of his feet upon me so he's outstretching his feet in between his daughter and his son-in-law radiyallahu anhuma and he said to them that shall i not inform you of something which is better than the servant that you asked for when you go to bed or before you go to bed remember allah subhanahu wa ta'ala say subhanallah 33 times alhamdulillah 33 times allahu akbar 34 times huwa khayrul lakum min khadim that is better for you than a servant ali radiyallahu anhu in some wording some narrations he said by allah i never left that advice after what the prophet said to me sallallahu alaihi wasallam some of his students the narrators of this narration in some weddings they said to him oh ali not even on the night of as-siffin the night of as-siffin is the famous battle that took place the battle of as-siffin that took place in the time in the khilaf of ali radiyallahu anhu they said to him not even upon that night when you're engaged in battle and there's war and there's killing and there's you know there's obviously like bloodshed and so on and ali radiyallahu anhu said not even upon that night meaning i never left this advice of the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam Now 
the Prophet ﷺ is clearly saying to them that you're going through, you know, difficult times, and this is like, you know, like the times that we're going in, going through now for many of us in many different parts of the world, uh, financially difficult, physically maybe difficult, difficult in a number of, of ways and, and and in a number of uh, of senses. And the Prophet ﷺ is saying to his daughter and his son-in-law, and we know that there was, there were not very many people that were more beloved to the Prophet ﷺ than Fatima radiyallahu anha. Her position is amazing to the extent that even when you look, uh, if, you, if you, you know, when we analyze the sunnah and we look at this slightly closely, the position of Fatima radiyallahu anha, you find that even when the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam at the very beginning of his prophethood, when he stood on the mountain of As-Safa and he's calling the different people of Quraysh, the different families and tribes and he's naming them and calling them to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala from amongst the people he names is his daughter Fatima. And he had other daughters at the time. Ruqayya is still alive. Umm Kulthum is still alive. Zainab is still alive. He has a number of other daughters. He has his wife, Khadija. He has a number of other people around. But from the names that he took was Fatima. Oh Fatima, daughter of Muhammad. If you don't say La ilaha illallah, there is nothing that I can do before you, uh, before you in front of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And so Fatima radiallahu anha is from the most beloved of people to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. But the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam says to I will give you something better than what you're asking for. So how does that work? Making this tasbih and tahmeed and tahleel and, and takbir and, and worshipping Allah Azza wa Jal through this, this type of dhikr. How does that help someone physically, financially and so on and so forth? It helps when the two are aligned, when the heart is aligned with the, with the tongue. And that is why that is when a reminder truly profits a person. And that is why the companions were people who would always seek to remind one another. They were people who used to like to sit with one another and they would say, Come and sit with us, let us increase in Iman for a short while. Or they would sit, say to one another, let us sit down and remind one another. What does it mean, remind one another? It means read to me some verses of the Quran, give me a basic tafsir. You know, this is something which we don't, we don't do or you don't hear much of anymore. Uh, it is a practice in, in some masajid and it is a good practice and we used to see this a lot in the, in the Arab world. Uh, that after some of the salawat, or maybe sometimes even after uh, every salah, they would have a book like Riyadh al-Saliheen, and you read one or two hadith after every salah. It doesn't take you more than two or three minutes. And many of those hadith are very easy, self-explanatory, very, very simple, have very nice headings and, and, and chapter headings that the, that the authors have given to them. So very easy to understand, very easy to just take away that benefit from just to be reminded. And that is something which the companions would do Every so often, the companions had a practice that they would sit down with one another and they would just hear the recitation of the Quran, right? Not in, in the way that some people do it now, where they're trying to do it in some type of of of, uh, of uh, you know making it Arab to be like some type of an event or some type of no or on some type of special occasion or a special time or place or day. Or, no, just sit down together with some brothers and some 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 of your friends or some relatives or some family and you recite the Quran. And they remind Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala through the very recitation of the book of Allah جل, as the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam did with Abdullah bin Mas'ud radiallahu anhu when he asked him to recite from Surah An-Nisa. No commentary, no tafsir, nothing. And obviously they understand the Qur'an by virtue of their language. They just simply listen to the Qur'an and they take from it the reminder that Allah جل, gives. And so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells and commands the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam to give reminder. Al-Imam Al-Tabari rahimahullah ta'ala said, Allah Azzawajal says, so warn or remind. O Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, remind my servants using my signs, my ayat, 
remind them using the reasons and the justifications, the proofs that I have given, and convey the message. For indeed, your only task is to warn. Meaning that that is why Allah Azza wa sends the prophets of Allah alayhi wa salatu wa salam. As Allah Azza wa says in the Quran, inna arsalnaka shahidan wa mubashiran wa nadira. We have sent we have sent you as a witness, as a giver of glad tidings, and as a warner. And so that is the essential task of the prophets and messengers of Allah, alayhi salatu wa salam. And the greatest of reminder that you can have, especially in our time, or especially in our ummah, for our ummah, is the reminder of the book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, reminder of the Quran. And so the Quran is an amazing reminder. So to remind people of Allah Azza wa Jal using the Quran is from the best types of of uh, of reminders. Sheikh Muhammad Al-Amin Al-Shanqiti rahimahullah ta'ala, he said that Allah Azza wa Jal when he tells us here or when he informs us or gives the command rather to the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam to remind for indeed you have been sent as a warner and as one who gives reminder. He says that is because when a person looks at the signs of Allah Azza wa Jal, every one of those signs of Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala be they the signs of the universe or the signs of his revelation then it is something which a person who is of pure heart, of pure intellect, of pure fitrah, they can use that to come towards Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And the Shaykh in his tafsir, he gives examples of how even in the times of Jahiliyyah, before Islam, before the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, as we know that there were a group, and they were not many, but a few of them, a few amongst the Arabs and the Quraysh and so on, they would be from amongst them people who would say that we are upon the religion of Ibrahim. Right? People like Waraqa ibn Nawfal and people like Zayd ibn Amr ibn Nufail. These types of individuals who would refuse to worship the idols of Quraysh and the Arabs, they would refuse to sacrifice to them, they would refuse to engage in the practices of shirk and they would say this is not the religion of our forefathers, this isn't what Ibrahim left us upon, this isn't what the Kaaba is about and Safa and Marwan and so on and so forth of the Hajj and these practices that we have from the time of Ibrahim alayhi salatu wassalam. So they would say this to them, but obviously they would be ignored because they would consider just to be this, uh, you know, kind of fringe minority that doesn't really know what it's what it's speaking about. But uh, Sheikh Muhammad Al-Amin, rahimahullah ta'ala, he mentions in his tafsir, and I just want to want to mention this because he says that even those people, they had no revelation. There was no prophet at the time, no messenger, no Quran, no revelation from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But just by virtue of their pure fitrah and their pure heart, they understood just by looking at the signs of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that there must be one God and one Lord alone that is worthy of worship who created everything and therefore deserves to be worshipped subhanahu wa ta'ala. And he gives the poetry of Zayd ibn Amr ibn Nufayl. Zayd ibn Amr is the father of the companion Sa'id ibn Zayd radiyallahu anhu. Sa'id ibn Zayd, as we know, uh, is one of the ten companions that was promised paradise by the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and is from the relatives of Umar radiyallahu anhu. Uh, his name is Sa'id ibn Zayd. His father was Zayd ibn Amr. And Zayd ibn Amr was someone who was upon this religion of what they would call the, just being on the religion of Ibrahim alayhi salatu wasalam. He has some nice poetry here which I will read in Arabic and give to you a, a very rough translation. Uh, he says, وَأَسْلَمْتُ وَجْهِ لِمَنْ أَسْلَمَتْ لَهُ الْأَرْضُ تَحْمِلُ صَخْرًا ثِقَالًا He says that I have submitted my face to the, to the one to whom the earth has also submitted with all of its rocks and all of its stones. The earth that has been laid out flat, and then it has been made firm. 
and then Allah Azza wa Jal placed within it firm mountains. And I have submitted my face to the one to whom the heavy clouds with the water that they contain have also submitted to. When they are driven towards a land, they command or they obey the command of Allah and they cause their selves to be emptied, meaning that the rain descends from those clouds in the places that Allah Azza wa Jal wills. And I have submitted my face to the one to whom the wind submits when it goes from place to place. And he says, so they would say, Shaykh Muhammad Al-Amin is saying, that they would look at everything around them, the signs of Allah Azza wa Jal, and they would reflect on the wind, and upon the mountains, and upon the earth, and upon the sky. And they would see all of this, and they would realize the many benefits and the intricate way in which each one of these creations of Allah Azza wa Jal works. And they would therefore see within them signs of a single creator that is worthy of worship, subhanahu wa ta'ala. Because if you had, as Allah Azza wa Jal mentions elsewhere in the Quran, multiple gods, multiple deities, each one wanting to control different elements, or even if one controls fire and the other one controls water and the other one controls air and the other one controls, and each one is trying to combat the other using what they consider, they would be, as Allah Azza wa Jal says, lafasadata. They would be corruption and evil, widespread upon the earth in the use of those natural resources and in the use of those creations. And so Allah Azza wa Jal commands the Prophet وسلم, to remind, use the signs of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, use the revelation of Allah Azza wa Jal, use the creation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to remind the people for that is your role. The role of the Prophets of Allah and the messengers is to give reminder. It is not to compel, not to force, it is not to judge people in terms of, uh, in terms of whether they're going to be from the people of paradise or hellfire or give guidance or not have guidance unless they receive revelation from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala concerning certain specific people. But that is in the hands of Allah Azza wa Jal generally speaking. And that is why in verse number 22, Allah Azza wa Jal then says, Lasta alayhim bi musaytir. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the translation of Professor Abdul Halim, you are not there to control them. Sahih International, you are not, you are not over them a controller. Mufti Taqi, you are not a taskmaster set up over them. And Muhsin Khan, you are not a dictator over them. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, your role is to remind, O Messenger of Allah, your role is to give a reminder. And you are not there to control them, or to overpower them, or to force them. Ibn Abbas radiallahu anhuma, Mujahid, uh, even Qatada, uh, you know, they have like slightly different weddings, but the meaning is the same. All of them radiallahu anhum, rahimahumullah, all of them said that the meaning of the word musaytir means to be like a dictator or to compel or to force. You are not a Jabbar, you are not a Qahir. You are not someone who is there to compel, to force, to dictate to people in terms of their belief. Some of the scholars said that this verse was later abrogated once the verses of Jihad were revealed. But the stronger position Allah Azza wa knows best is that there is no difference between the two because the Prophet even after uh, the verses of Jihad were revealed didn't compel people or force them to accept Islam. Yes, he spread the religion of Islam and he, and he uh, lifted up oppression from the Muslims and what they were facing and so on. But the people, even those that he conquered and, and fought and so on, were not compelled to become Muslims. They had a choice and they chose to become Muslims, but they weren't compelled or forced to do so. Just like today, if you were to call people to Islam, you call them, you invite them. 
but you don't have the position to force and compel them. And the reason why is because those people, even if they were to compel to become Muslim and in their hearts there is not Islam, they're not Muslim. If a person outwardly shows Islam but inwardly doesn't have Islam, that is by its very definition what we call a munafiq, a hypocrite. So those people haven't accepted Islam, they're not Muslims. They're, 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 in fact, if anything, they're probably more of a danger to the Muslims than if they were just normal disbelievers and people who didn't accept Islam. And so that is why Allah says in this verse, your role over them is to remind. And that is because the Prophet also, as we know, throughout his seerah, and it's mentioned in places in the Quran, and it's mentioned also in the Sunnah of the Prophet The Prophet would sometimes feel this onus of responsibility, and he would feel this burden upon him, that these people who were his kin's people, his tribe's people, his relative, his family, his, his blood relations, if they didn't believe or they didn't accept Islam, he would fear for them. Because obviously that means that if they die upon that disbelief, they will be punished. And sometimes that would lead the Prophet to becoming overly uh, concerned concerning them, worried for them, saddened over their case. And that, that is why the Prophet ﷺ in the Quran, in a number of places, told the Prophet ﷺ, do not despair over what it is that they say. Don't despair. You know, you're almost going to destroy yourself because of the kufr and the disbelief that they display. And don't do so. And so the Prophet ﷺ is told, this is not your, this is not your ability to choose. And that is why the hadith of Al-Musayyab ibn Hazan, also in Sahih al-Bukhari, Al-Musayyab ibn Hazan, uh, is the father of the famous Imam of the Tabi'een, Sa'id ibn Musayyab, Sa'id ibn al-Musayyab, and uh, he relates this hadith, Al-Musayyab ibn Hazan, I think, either from himself or from his father. His father's name was Hazan, his father's name uh, was Hazan, uh, and it is said that he came, I think if I remember this correctly anyway, but I, and I think this is also in Sahih Bukhari. Uh, he came to the Prophet and the Prophet asked him, what is your name? And he said it is Hazan. Hazan means sadness. Right? It's, it's a very common name that the Arabs used to have in the times of Jahiliyyah. He said, my name is Sadness. And we know that the Prophet didn't like those types of names. Didn't like names that didn't have good meanings. So he said, rather, you are Sahl. Sahl means easygoing. It's the opposite of Hazan. Hazan is worried and depressed and saddened. No, you're easygoing. He replied and he said, I will never change the name that my father gave to me. I mean, this is my father's name. That's the name that he gave to me. It's what he called me and I'm not going to change that. The Prophet said to him, then so be it. Meaning, okay, you know, that's it and so on. This is amazing, by the way, in the Sunnah you will find. Often in these cases, the Prophet doesn't, doesn't push these issues. He tells them what is better for them gives them uh, you know gives them the the choice and so on but at the end of the day if the person doesn't want to accept the prophet doesn't fight them over. okay that's fine it's your choice and so saeed ibn musayyib rahimahullah the imam of the tabi'in he said from that time sadness has always struck our family meaning from that time we have continued to be in this state of sadness meaning that the prophet وسلم, was telling them to change to something that would have been better for them but his grandfather refused anyway. But the point is that this hadith of, of his father, Al-Musayyib ibn Hazan, uh, he mentions that the, in the, the, the story of the death of Abu Talib and how he doesn't accept Islam and then how Allah Azza wa Jalla revealed as a result of that the verse, إِنَّكَ لَا تَهْدِي مَنْ أَحْبَبْتَ وَلَكِنَّ اللَّهَ يَهْدِي مَنْ يَشَاءَ You do not guide whomsoever you will, but rather it is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala who gives guidance to whomsoever he pleases subhanahu wa ta'ala. 
And so Allah Azza wa Jal, therefore, likewise, is saying in this verse, you don't have power over them. It's not your job to compel, you, don't, you can't dictate, you can't force. It is simply your role to remind. It is simply your role to remind. It is simply your role to call people to the message of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. If they refuse, they're refusing the tawheed of Allah Azza wa Jal and refusing to worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. In the, uh, the verse Musaytir, it can be read with a seen and with a sad. It can be read with a seen and with a sad. The reading of the majority is uh, is with the sad, and the reading of Ibn Kathir and others is with a seen. Right. So the reading of the majority is with the sad, like the way that we read it. And the reading of the scene is the recitation of Ibn Kathir from the, the Imam of Mecca. And it is also the reading of Hisham. It is also the reading of Hisham, who is one of the two uh, narrators of, of uh, Ibn Amir. Ibn Amir, alayhi muhammadullah. And so it can be read as Musaytir and it can be read as Musaytir with a scene. Uh, and both of them have one and the same meaning. And Imam al-Bukhari, in his tafsir, in the Sahih, in the Tafsir of the Surah, he says the meaning of Musaytir is Musallit, meaning one who has control, a controller over you. And that's why I think that you have these different translations as well. Each one of them has chosen, you know, different Tafsir from either Ibn Abbas or Mujahid or Qatada or Imam al-Bukhari, rahimahullahu ta'ala. Uh, Ibn Tin, uh, one of the linguists, he said that the meaning of the word Musaytir uh, with the Sin and with the Sa'd, there are two languages or two dialects of one and the same word. He said it comes from the word uh, satar, which means line. And it means that you can't go beyond this line. And so the one who compels and forces draws a line and says, this is what you must do. You can't go beyond this, meaning you don't have another choice. That is the origin of the word and where it comes from. And Allah Azza wa Jal, uh, knows best. And some of the scholars, as I said, were of the position that this is simply in the Meccan period after the uh, you know, after the the verse of, of jihad is revealed in Medina, because this is Mecca surah, so in Medina, once the verse of jihad is revealed, then they are able to use force. And so they understand, and a number of scholars understand the, all of these verses in the Quran that speak like this or mention something like this, where the Prophet was just told to be patient or not to do anything, whatever. Uh, they say all of them have been abrogated later on by the verses of jihad, and others say no, they haven't been abrogated because the two are not necessarily in conflict with one another. You can still continue to remind, you can still continue, and the fact that you also have the option of making jihad or defending yourself and so on, that is a that is a different ruling that doesn't necessarily contradict or conflict with this one and Allah Azza wa knows best. And that is what Imam Tabari rahimahullah ta'ala said, you are not a compeller over them nor a dictator over them, but rather you simply call. It is as if Allah Azza wa is saying, leave their affairs to me and leave their judgment for me, I will judge upon them with what is most befitting. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in verse number 23, he then gives an exception to this and he says, إِلَّا مَنْ تَوَلَّى Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, except as for those who turn away and disbelieve. That is the translation of Professor Abdul Halim. And I want you to pay attention to this uh, because there is two ways of making tafsir of this word illa here. So Professor Abdul Harim, he says, as for those who turn away and disbelieve, 
Mufti Taqi, but whoever turns away and disbelieves, Sahih International, however he who turns away and disbelieves, and Muhsin Khan, save the one who turns away and disbelieves. Uh, Al-Imam Al-Tabari, rahimahullah ta'ala, he says that Allah Azza wa says here, accept, like the word illa generally means accept, but it can have different meanings depending on the, the, uh, the, the context. The istithna in the Arabic language, which means an exception to the rule or an exception to the statement, is of two types. One is muttasil and one is munqati'. Muttasil means that it is connected, munqati' means that it is disconnected. So for example, if I say, uh, you know, everyone stand up except Muhammad. That means that I want everyone to stand up, but Muhammad can stay seated, he can stay sitting down. That is called ittisal al-istithna' al-muttasil. So you are making an exception that is connected to the general wording or the general context of the general speech that you are making. There is also another form in the Arabic language, which is harder for me to translate because I don't know the, the linguistic, you know, if there's anything which is comparatively, uh, if we have like a comparison in the English language, I'm not sure. Um, but there is in, in Arabic something which we call istithna' munqata. It is a disconnect, uh, an exception that is disconnected. Disconnected in the sense that it doesn't have anything to do with, with what is coming before. And so it is as if a new statement is starting. The illa except, and that is why I think Professor Abdul Hanim and Allah knows best, I assume Allah knows best, that his translation is as for those. He doesn't say however or but or except like the others did. He says as for those, as if you're starting a brand new sentence and a brand new uh, discussion. Both of those positions you will find in the books of Tafsir, one of them, Al-Qurtubi mentioned, Ibn Atiyah mentions it, Abu Hayyan, Al-Andalusi mentions it, all of them mention it. But I will give to you the statement of Imam Al-Tabari, uh, Rahimahullah Ta'ala. He said that Allah Azza wa Jal, when he says, Illa man tawalla wa kafar, he said that there are two possible meanings or two possible ways that we can understand this. The first of them is the istithna al-muttasil. And that is that it is as if Allah Azza wa Jal is saying, O Messenger of Allah, Remind the people. You are a warner, so remind the people of Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam. Except for those who turn away from you, meaning as for them, and they turn away, then you don't need to remind them that they, they will not benefit and profit from the reminder. So those people who actively turn away from you and they go away from you and they don't want to know you and they don't want to listen to you and so on, you're not obliged to go and and to chase them at every single turn. You remind them once. You remind them when you can. But you don't have to go and face over them because they have turned away from the signs of Allah and the reminder of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And so it's as if Allah therefore is saying, remind the people for you are a reminder except for those who turn away and they disbelieve. Meaning that they are outside of your ability to force and to compel them. That's the first tafsir. The second tafsir is the disconnected one. Right, the disconnected one. And that is that the meaning is as for those who turn away and disbelieve, meaning Allah is saying, remind the people for you are a reminder. You can't compel and force them. As for those who turn away and disbelieve, meaning they don't listen to the reminder, they don't benefit, they don't believe in the reminder. As for them, then Allah will say in the next verse, in verse 24, Allah will inflict upon them the greatest of punishments or the greatest of torments. For al-akbar. 
So it's as if it has nothing to do with the reminder beforehand. Allah is simply saying, as for these people, this will be their end result. This will be their end result. Uh, and so this is the this is the uh, the two possible ways of understanding this istithna or this exception in this verse. The first is that it's referring to the situation of those people at that time. It's referring to them that there will be people who will never listen to you. They will always turn away from you. They will always reject you. They will always ignore you. Or the second tafsir is that it's referring to the end result of those people. The end result of those people. And that's why you will find both of these tafsir in the early works and in the later works as well. And Allah Azza wa Jal knows best. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala then says in verse number 24, Allah says, as for those people who turned away and disbelieved, then Allah will inflict the greatest torment upon them. Mufti Taqi, Allah will punish them with the greatest torment. Sahih International, then Allah will punish him with the greatest punishment. And Muhsin Khan, then Allah will punish him with the greatest punishment. The greatest punishment uh, is as Imam Tabari, Rahimahullah, and Al-Qurtubi, Ibn Kathir, and pretty much all of the scholars with tafsir said, it is the punishment of the next life, the punishment of Jahannam. And some of those scholars, they said the reason why it is called the greatest punishment or the major punishment is because those people are punished in this life as well. The disbelievers have punishment in this life, whether that's sickness, whether that's uh, you know famine or disease, whether it's poverty, whatever it might be, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala also places punishment upon them throughout this world. But those punishments are small. They are considered to be lesser punishments or minor punishments. The greatest of those punishments is reserved for them in the next life. And so as for those who disbelieve, or except for those who disbelieve, right, or turn away, either way, for them, all of those people, essentially, whether, you know, it, whichever istithna, an exception, or, or tafsir that we take for that exception, the end result is one and the same, and that is that Allah Azza wa will punish them with the greatest of punishments. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, therefore, in some ways, He links the end of this surah to the beginning of the surah. The beginning of the surah begins with the description of the of the punishment of the people of the fire, the punishment of the disbelievers. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala then goes through the reward of the believers and the signs of Allah Azza wa and the importance of the reminder and the importance of heeding that reminder. And then it's as if Allah Azza wa is coming full circle and saying, and as for those who disbelieve, then they will have the greatest of punishment. What is the greatest of punishment? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has mentioned it at the beginning of the surah all of those punishments that Allah mentioned beforehand and so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying that they will have the greatest of torments and the greatest of punishments that being the punishment of Yawmul Qiyamah Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the final two verses, in verse number 25, he then goes on and he says, It is to us that they will return, or surely towards us they have to return, Mufti Taqiyya Uthmani, Sahih International, indeed to us is their return, and Muhsin Khan, verily to us will be their return. Allah Azza wa Jal says that they will return to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. In the uh, other reading or in, in the reading of Abu Ja'far uh, it is read with the shaddah inna with the shaddah upon the ya and the reading of the majority is as we read inna 
they will return. The, the word Iyab, as Ibn Abbas and Qatad and As-Suddi said, is essentially the return to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Uh, and the Imam al-Tabri says the same thing. They will return to us after their disbelief and they will come back to us. That will be their final abode and their final uh, destination, meaning Yawm uh, Al-Qiyamah and then what Allah Azza wa Jal will do in terms of their judgment. Ibn Al-Qayyim he says concerning this verse, a, a very beautiful statement, and that is that he says that this verse therefore shows that our life is a journey because you only return to someone once you set out upon a journey. You have a destination that you're traveling towards. You leave from your home for a destination that you're traveling to to return back to your home. It is a journey that you're taking. And so Allah Azza wa Jal, when He says to us will be your return, therefore shows that we left from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, meaning that our father Adam salam was created as we know and placed in Jannah and then removed from Jannah. And then we have to go through this long journey in this dunya to eventually return back to our ultimate destination, which is the Akhirah, which is the next life and which is obviously which will take place on Yawm Al-Qiyamah. And so therefore he says that anyone who's on a journey knows psychologically you prepare for yourself and you ready yourself that that journey will be difficult no one goes on a journey except that they even if it's a very pleasant journey even if you're going to go for example on a first class aeroplane and and you're going to have five star hotels and you're going to be uh, you know every single way and turn you're going to be pampered upon still psychologically you will prepare yourself for some type of hardship there will be some comforts that you will not have there will be some things that you will you know ready yourself for it may be the climate which may be very different to what you're used to. It may be the insects that are there or certain illnesses that may be prevalent in that area or, or the food may, be, may, may not be to your liking or whatever it may be. There are always hardships that you psychologically prepare yourself for whenever you go upon a journey. Whenever you say that I'm going on a travel, even if you expect most of that travel to be relatively pleasant and good. If you're going for Hajj, you prepare yourself mentally for some of the hardships of the journey of Hajj. You're going to a country to visit or go on holiday. You prepare yourself to some extent for some of the potential difficulties that you may face. And so Ibn Qayyim says that is the nature of every journey. And so therefore the believer in the journey back to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala should not just expect some hardship and difficulty, but rather they should expect a deal of, a good deal of, or a great deal of hardship and difficulty because Allah has told us that that will be the case and the Prophet likewise. And so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that they will return to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And we know in the Sunnah, a number of hadith that speak and give the example of this life, like the example of a traveler or a journey. Right? As the Prophet said, be in this life as if you are a stranger or a traveler. Right? Uh, and, and, the, and the hadith of the Prophet وسلم, when he was sitting or when he, when he said that my example is like the example of the one who is riding and then he finds a tree under which there is shade so he stops there to rest for a short while knowing that he will soon resume his journey. Right? That is example exactly what this dunya is. It is like that brief shade meaning that it's just a place that you stopped but when you stop at a rest stop, you stop at a service station, you stop for example, even if you're traveling as on holiday and you go to another place, even if you're there for a week or two weeks or three weeks, you know sooner or later you're going to leave. Even if that place is relatively comfortable, you know that it's not home. You know that you're not going to take everything that you possess and buy a, a property there or, or you know, I don't know, transfer all of your wealth there or whatever it may be. 
you're going to remain there for a temporary time and then you're going to continue upon your journey. And that is exactly what the believer does in this dunya. Every person does in this dunya, but the believer is aware of it in terms of they know that its reality is this. And that they will then return to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as Allah Azza says, Inna ilayna iyabahum. It is to us that they will return. And then in the final verse of Surah Al-Ghashi, Allah Azza says, ثُمَّ إِنَّ عَلَيْنَا حِسَابَهُمْ And then it is for us to call them to account. That is the uh, translation of Professor Abdul Harim. In Sahih International, then indeed upon us is their account, Mufti Taqi. Then it is our job to call them to account. And Muhsin Khan, then verily, for us will be their reckoning. So Allah Azza wa concludes this surah by saying that they will return to us and we will hold them to account, we will judge them. Meaning, and this is connected to these verses that we began with today, the Prophet ﷺ is told, your job is to remind, your job is to convey the message, your job is to call people to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. As for the accounting, the judging, that is for Allah Azza wa to do on Yawm Al-Qiyamah. That is why Qatada, rahimahullah ta'ala, he said that it is upon Allah to judge the people in accordance to what they held in their hearts and their actions and their beliefs and so on and so forth. And Imam Al-Tabari, Rahimahullah Ta'ala said, Allah Azza wa says, then, then it is upon Allah to hold them to account. So He is the one who will, who will hold them to account for what they did of disobedience to their Lord. And He is informing His Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam that He is the one who will punish them and He is the one who will hold them to account. He is the one who will deal with their reckoning. And as for you, O Messenger of Allah, it is your job to remind and to simply convey the message. And so when the people stand before Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala, Allah Azza wa will tell them that they had their reminders, they had their signs, they had their, uh, their, uh, they had their, uh, the, the many, the many messages that came to them from their Lord, and because and as a result of what they chose to do, Allah Azza wa will judge them accordingly. If they were believers, then Allah Subhanahu wa Taala gives them His mercy and His blessings and His reward, and if they're disbelievers, then they will be people who are punished. So this surah is an amazing surah as we've seen its many lessons, its many benefits, but also the reminder that it contains for the believer on a regular basis as we as we mentioned that it is a sunnah to recite this surah regularly or semi-regularly, uh, you know, like in Jumu'ah and Eid and certain salawat. And that is because of its of, of the many lessons that it contains and the reminder that is mentioned therein for the people of Iman and for the believers to contemplate upon the existence of the or the reason of the creation and the existence in this world and how by contemplating the signs of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala it brings them closer to Allah azza wa jal and they increase in iman the people of iman increase in iman by reflecting upon the signs that bring to them that iman and so with that inshallah ta'ala we will conclude uh, today's lesson if anyone has any questions I'll take them but inshallah ta'ala I think next week uh, most likely I will do a one-off special um, in which I wanted to, uh, inshallah ta'ala, this is the plan anyway, uh, is to do a one-off special in which I wanted to touch upon some of the uh, some of the sciences of reading the Qur'an, some of the sciences. So we began this year's QP, as you remember, with the science of Abdul Ay, which is, uh, which is the numbering of the verses. And I mentioned that there's six different sciences that all revolve around the recitation of the Qur'an from Mr. Jweed and Qiraat and so on and so I wanted to go through that but in a slightly practical way so maybe we'll take for example Surah Al-Baqarah 
or maybe Surah Al-Fatiha, maybe some of the smaller surahs of the Quran. And so if you have a Mus'haf with you next week, I think that would be good. Just to show you how practically it's done and how the Salaf would actually, when they read the Quran and learned the Quran, how they would do it so that we understand uh, the methodology that the scholars of old used to have that unfortunately in our time has somewhat become uh, rare or somewhat, you know, somewhat uh, yeah, it's kind of like been lost uh, over time. Um, but just so that you can understand that, inshallah ta'ala, I, I will speak about that in more detail ta'ala next week, inshallah ta'ala. That is the plan anyway. And obviously we have the tafsir of Surah Al-A'la coming up as well. So if for one whatever reason I can't do that next week, then we'll delay that to another week uh, or another special week. And then uh, we'll just continue that tafsir with Surah Al-A'la. But that is the plan, inshallah ta'ala. Uh, those who said that verse 22 has been abrogated after the verses on jihad, did they also say the same in Surah Al-Baqarah? Surah Al-Baqarah was abrogated too, like Rahafiddin. Uh, yes, probably so. I can't remember from the time, uh, from, the, from the top of my head. Uh, but there are a number of verses that tell the Prophet for example, just to forgive and to be, uh, for, to, to, be uh, to pardon and, and, and so on and so forth. Those verses generally in the Quran, they will speak about, uh, they will speak in this way. And, and it seems that Allah Azza knows best <coughs> uh, that they're speaking about slight, two slightly different things. So uh, you can't compel someone to um, to be a Muslim, right? You can't compel and force someone to accept Islam, but you can compel someone in a Muslim country to abide by the laws of the Muslims. Just like in this country, we abide by the laws of the country that we live in. If you live in the U.S., in Australia, in Canada, in Malaysia, whichever country of the world that you live in, you are compelled to. Uh, abide by the laws of that land and so therefore there there seems to be a difference in terms of exactly what the meaning of or what the scholars are referring to uh, some referring to one specific thing and some referring to other specific things so for example even in jihad if someone's if, if the muslim ruler is uh, declaring jihad and he's fighting jihad and so on those people don't necessarily have to become muslim but once that land becomes under the control of the muslims then they, those people would abide by the laws of the muslims and so, yes, there would be a level of compulsion in that sense, but it would not be the compulsion that is the major aspect of our religion, which is the compulsion of belief, that you force people to accept a religion, that you force people to hold a belief system that they don't believe in, that they don't accept, that they reject. Though that type of thing uh, wouldn't be done because, like I said, there is no benefit. The whole idea of people accepting Islam is that you save them from the punishment of Allah and the fire. If someone isn't truly a Muslim in their heart, even if they profess to be a Muslim, you haven't achieved that objective. And so the idea isn't just to tick a box or to increase numbers or to you know do a survey or something. It is to actually save people from the punishment of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala by guiding them to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And Allah Azza wa knows best. So inshallah ta'ala, we will conclude there for today and inshallah ta'ala next week, inshallah will either be most likely will be the special uh, but if for some reason uh, i can't do that for whatever reason then we will just continue with the tafsir of surah al-a'la barakallahu feekum wa sallallahu alayhi wa sallam wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in wa assalamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh